I invite you to turn with me to the gospel according to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, the verses 15 to 31. These are the words of Jesus. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Now we turn to Lord's Day 18, which explains the phrase in the Apostles' Creed regarding the ascension of Christ into heaven. Lord's Day 18 of the Catechism, page 532. Here we read as follows, what do you confess when you say, he ascended into heaven? 
that Christ before the eyes of his disciples was taken up from the earth into heaven and that he is there for our benefit until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Is Christ then not with us until the end of the world as he has promised us? Christ is true man and true God. With respect to his human nature, he is no longer on earth. But with respect to his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. But are the two natures in Christ not separated from each other? If his human nature is not present wherever his divinity is? Not at all. For his divinity has no limits and is present everywhere. So it must follow that his divinity is indeed beyond the human nature which he has taken on and nevertheless is within this human nature and remains personally united with it. How does Christ's ascension into heaven benefit us? First, he is our advocate in heaven before his Father. Second, we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, will also take us as members up to himself. Third, he sends us his Spirit as a counterpledge by whose power we seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and not the things that are on earth. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the great blessings of living in a technological age like ours is that it makes it possible for us to follow along with an event even though we are not present. Perhaps some of you watched the coronation of King Charles III yesterday. Thanks to technology, you had a much better view of the proceedings than if you had been there in person. At the same time, there are disadvantages to this as well. Take the church live feed as an example. I can look into the camera, and you can feel like I'm looking at you. But the fact is that in many cases, I don't really know who is listening. That changes the dynamic of communication. When I'm here with you in person, I can see how you react. I can slow down or stop or explain something if necessary. But I cannot do that for the people listening on the live feed. So the live feed changes the dynamic of communication. You know that I am here. I know that you're listening, although I can't be completely sure. And through the live feed, we have a, a kind of a connection, but not really. Not a very personal one. Not over the live feed, anyway. And it's possible that many of us feel that way about the ascension as well. We believe that it happened. We believe that Christ speaks to us through his word today. We believe that his spirit dwells within all believers. But sometimes we still feel like we're listening in on a live feed. We can't see him in person. We're separated by layers of distance, of culture, of time, of circumstance. 
And we feel that the ascension just makes that sense of distance stronger. But now the catechism comes and it tells us that Christ is actually closer than ever. Specifically, it says that with respect to his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. But how real is that? How are we to understand that and apply that in daily life? And why did the writers of the catechism pick these four words? These, it's kind of puzzling, isn't it? Divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit. They picked those four words specifically. And the writers of the catechism were smart. These people, well-educated. They had a big vocabulary. They could have chosen any words. Why did they pick these four? What are we supposed to do with that? Well, as we'll see, these four words re- reflect four aspects of the presence of Christ, and they also follow a logical sequence. You see, the ascension of our Lord proves that He is always with us. And we'll see that His divinity proves that He is able to be with us. His majesty proves that He has the right to be with us. His grace proves that he wants to be with us and his spirit proves that he is in fact with us. And so we'll pay attention to these four words. The ascension of our Lord proves that he is always with us with respect to his divinity, his majesty, his grace, and his spirit. And so we consider the word divinity. What does it actually mean to be divine? Well, in English it can mean a number of different things. In this context, it means to be divine means to be God. So when the Catechism tells us that with his divinity, he is never absent, it's telling us that Christ is never absent from us because of his godness, so to speak. God's godness, his divinity, means, among other things, that he is omnipresent, that he can be in all places at once. It's a breathtaking thought. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? That's from Jeremiah 23. And in Ephesians 4 verse 10, Paul writes that he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things or In some translations, the entire universe, that would be all things, would it not? So, with respect to his divinity, he is present everywhere. But if we think about that, Jesus ascended as a man. The whole point of the ascension is that he now physically stands in the presence of God as a true human being. And true human beings cannot, I never will be able to, be in two places at once. So how, how do we make sense out of that? And that's where we can look at the two natures of Christ. Because he has a human nature and a divine nature, and these two natures are very closely connected. We should not think of Christ's divinity and humanity existing side by side, without touching each other. He was both. He was both and. 
In the words of the 5th century council of Chalcedon, he was truly God and truly man in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. The two natures of our Lord are inseparably linked. You imagine that. Colossians 1 verse 16 says that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So the person who created the galaxies is now a true human being. Think about that. He didn't just start as a man and then graduate, so to speak, to becoming God, as the Mormons teach about God the Father. Instead, he is and always has been God. And now he has a human nature in addition to that. And what does that mean for us? It simply means that he has become familiar to us. He's still present everywhere in terms of his divine nature, but that presence is no longer something other, something terrifying, something strange to us, because he shares in our humanity, as Hebrews 2 verse 14 puts it. And knowing that already brings him much closer. No matter where you are, Christ is present as well. In terms of his physical body, he is in heaven. But in terms of his divinity, he fills heaven and earth. If you're lying awake in a hospital bed at four in the morning, Christ is there. If you are sleep-deprived on the third night of a double ear infection with your youngest, and you're desperate for sleep, Christ is present. If you come home to an empty house after the holidays, and you feel lonely, Christ is present. There's no place on, on this earth where his redeeming love cannot find you. When Stephen was being stoned in Acts chapter 7, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knew that his prayer would be heard. Even though Jesus was not bodily present with him, he was present in spirit. He was there to receive Stephen. And so there was not a shadow of a doubt and no fear when he died. So with respect to his divinity, our Lord is always with us. And that's what the ascension teaches us. He's also present with us with respect to his majesty. If his divinity proves that he is able to be with us, his majesty proves that he has the right to be with us. What does majesty mean? Majesty simply means greatness, dignity, or authority. The majesty of Christ proves that he has the right to be with us always. How? Because his ascension means a coronation. We saw a coronation yesterday, the crowning of a king. But the ascension was the coronation of Christ. He entered heaven and he was crowned, recognized as king of the universe. How did he earn that? Through his resurrection. Sometimes people, when people think about the ascension, they get hung up on the mechanics of it. They think, well, how, how did this work? Is it meant literally? And so on. But that question misses the point. His ascension means that he entered heaven and that he was crowned king. Consider the words of Hebrews 2, verse 7 through 9 here. 
quoting from Psalm 8 and applying it to Christ. He says, You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So the writer takes this psalm, Psalm 8, and he applies it to Christ, and he says this was fulfilled in Christ. He's raised from the dead, ascended into heaven. All things have been put in subjection under him. Now, you could argue that that by right should make him more remote, not less. After all, earthly royalty are so far removed from us already. The current royal family has, has done well in becoming more and more approachable. And in a sense, the spirit of our time that demands that. They've let the public view a lot of their lives. But even if you see them, and even if you had been there and gotten one way from the carriage, realistically, they don't see you. They don't know you. Technology can bring us close. It can bring us to the very moment where we see the king and queen being crowned. But it doesn't bridge that personal gap. And here's where the majesty of Christ is different. His majesty means that he is king, not just in a general sense, but over the lives of each one of us. Our lives are not something beneath his dignity. In fact, he died to redeem them. His crown was a crown of thorns, as the archbishop did point out at the beginning of that coronation service. So the details matter very much to him. But it also then means, conversely, that our lives are subject to his reign. It is, it is not only that he is our king, Christ, but that we are also to submit to him, to recognize his kingship. We must kiss the sun, as Psalm 2 puts it. And this is the problem of our lives, isn't it? So often we do not submit the real problem is not that the majesty of Christ is far away from us. That's never been the real problem. The real problem is that His majesty is so close to us and that we do not recognize it. Part of the reason why we are so blind to His majesty in our lives is because we have not really given much thought to who we are. We, we have not given much thought to the fact that we're born as sinners. We've not being overwhelmed by the horror of sin. We're not like the prophet Isaiah, who on seeing a vision of God cried out, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, Isaiah knew the horror of sin. Or consider Peter when he realized who Jesus was, and his first reaction is, Depart from me. He's not asking Christ to come closer to him. He's saying, go away. I'm a sinful man. You're too good for me. Or consider Revelation 1 where John saw the risen Lord on the island of Patmos. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. 
In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is Jesus he's talking about. This is the majesty of Christ. And the common reaction to seeing the majesty of Christ in the Bible is dread. Dread comes from having an overwhelming awareness of personal sin in the presence of God and a corresponding awareness of the greatness and the majesty of Christ. And that's the problem, that we do not share in that dread. Even though there's still so much sin in our lives. Until we get to that point, we will not be convicted by his worthiness. And this is really so impressive when you read the book of Revelation. The one thing that comes back over and over is this, the the thing that the book builds up to is this overwhelming sense of the worthiness of Christ, that there is no one else who ought to sit on the throne of the universe, no one else who ought to rule, that only Christ is worthy. Revelation 4 verse 11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Until we can make that confession our own, until we are overwhelmed with the worthiness of Christ and the rightness of submitting our lives to him and a desire to see the whole world filled with his glory, we will not see things in their proper perspective. We will continue to have our thoughts and our imaginations captured by things that are banal and of this world. And we will not understand that Christ is with us with respect to his majesty. His majesty calls us to submission. It impresses us with the importance of submission, and because of his divinity, it reminds us that all of our lives are lived in his presence, and that one day we will see him face to face. We've seen that the ascension of our Lord proves that he is always with us, He's not only able to be with us, he not only has the undisputed right to be with us, but he also wants to be with us. And that's our third point. He's with us with respect to his grace. What is grace? Grace is God's undeserved favor to sinners. Psalm 103 puts it so beautifully. A classic statement of grace that he does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. You hear it every time that you celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's grace and all of its warmth and all of its beauty. That's grace. And Christ left us with grace, with a certainty of grace at his ascension. These two things are tied to each other. How is that possible? Well, he did that when he gave the blessing. The end of the Gospel of Luke shows him leading his disciples out of the city. And it says that he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he departed from them and was carried up into heaven. So you imagine the Lord ascending and the scope of his blessing changes or it spreads. And it starts to include not only the disciples but their surroundings. And as he ascends higher and higher, um, more and more comes into view of this blessing. The scope includes the countryside, and finally, the whole world is under the blessing hands of Christ. 
And that's the point, that the scope of his blessing extends everywhere. That no matter where you are, no matter who you are, when you turn to Christ in faith, you share in that blessing. His work is completed. The ascension shows that to us. And today, sinners continue coming to faith. Today, believers continue growing in the faith. And we see that happening through the preaching of the word, that this blessing is still active, that people still receive it. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ present among us, proving that he is very near, showing his undeserved favor in our lives. The blessing of the gospel, that he wants to forgive our sins, that he desires to be with us, that this, as we learned even from the preamble to the Ten Commandments, that it's always been God's desire to dwell with his people. And in Christ, that this is possible. That he has forgiven the sins that separate us from God. And that he operates not just from a distance, but through his word, speaks that blessing into our very lives, into our very hearts. But these things might be true, but without the Holy Spirit to apply that truth to us, it does us no good. And so in our last point, we're going to consider his presence through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is distinct from Christ, the third person in the Trinity, but shares the same divine essence. In verse 16 of our reading, Jesus said that he would give another counselor, another helper to be with us forever. And by saying that it would be another helper or another counselor, another comforter, depending on which translation you use, he makes it clear that the Holy Spirit will continue to do those things that Christ himself was doing. In other words, the Holy Spirit will be God with them and guiding them, not only during his ministry on earth, but forever. That's why in verse 18 he can also say that he will not leave them as orphans. Of course, he physically appeared to his disciples initially after his resurrection, but that was only temporary. And so he said he would send the Spirit who would extend this divine presence in their lives so that they would not be orphans, they would not be left without him. And from that perspective, verse 18 is really interesting because he's referring to the Spirit here, but he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will come to you. The Spirit of Christ and Christ himself are, are so closely identified with each other that he can actually say, I will come to you. We find a similar thought expressed in Ephesians chapter 3, the verses 16 to 17, where the Apostle Paul prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So the two, these two persons are, are separate from each other and yet so closely identified together because they are one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So Christ dwells in your hearts through faith. Now, sometimes people sense that faith on an emotional level. Other times, maybe less so. And you see, both of these 
mindsets reflected in the Psalms. Sometimes the psalmist seems to feel close to God and his difficulties. At other times, God seems to be far away from him. You got Psalms like Psalm 88. I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Or Psalm 42, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Or Psalm 22, where the psalmist says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. So the Lord's presence is not always something that you can feel on an emotional level. But there are other times when the psalmist does seem to sense God's presence on an emotional level. you get got the exuberance of Psalm 66, which ends with the words, Truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. So this person knows God has heard me. He's listened to me. And other psalms could be quoted as well. So in that case, the psalmist seems to sense the presence of God on an emotional level more strongly. And then we look at what the Catechism says. With respect to his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. And we wonder, is that something that you, um, that, that presence, is that something that you always feel emotionally? And the Psalms indicate to us that maybe sometimes you do and sometimes you might not because you cannot always live in a state of heightened spiritual awareness as you go about your day-to-day life. And anybody who's been a Christian for any length of time knows this. That sometimes you feel um, emotionally close to God and at other times you don't. And knowing that he is close and that sometimes we do sense that presence in a special way, especially during times of crisis, is very encouraging. But in the end, that is not the determining factor in our faith. Whether we experience strong emotions or not is not an indication as to whether or not we're a true believer. The truth is that even when we feel emotionally vulnerable or emotionally exhausted or maybe just emotionally flat, Christ is still near us. He's still near us by his spirit. The ascension of our Lord proves it. Because we have all of these things. We have his divinity. We have his majesty. We have his grace. We have his spirit. These things are never absent from us regardless of whether we perceive that in the same way all the time or not. His divinity proves that he is able to be with us. His majesty proves that he has the right to be with us. His grace proves that he desires to be with us, and his spirit proves that he is, in fact, with us. And one day, regardless of where we're at now, we will see him in his glory. We will see him as he is. We will see our ascended Lord. And until then, we have the promise of his presence in our lives. As we wait for the day when our faith will become sight and when he will be with us in the fullest sense imaginable, you can be sure of that because his ascension guarantees it. Amen.